Good to have you all here. Let's open our Bibles. Let's get there. Isaiah 44. Let's read the first five verses and then we'll pray. Yet hear now, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you and formed you from the womb, who will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, and you, Yeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water on him who is thirsty and floods on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your offspring. They will spring up among the grass like willows by the watercourses. One will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call himself by the name of Jacob. Another will write with his hand, the Lord's, and name himself by the name of Israel. Shall we pray? Our Father and our God, we give you thanks and praise for the privilege, the great privilege that we have, Lord, of being before your throne of grace. Not only, Lord, to obtain your mercy and to find grace for help in time of need. While that is important, Lord, it is that we may worship you in spirit and in truth. That we may bow down to you, Lord, with everything that is within us. And honor you and bless you and adore you and praise you and worship you as our God and as our King. We look to you, Lord, for the blessing and anointing of your Holy Spirit. We pray, Father, that you would grant us understanding and most importantly, wisdom. Wisdom, Lord, to live out and apply everything that we learn from your word. Whether it be today or Saturday or Sunday or any given day of the week that we come before you, Lord, to learn more of you, and to grow in your grace and knowledge. Strengthen us, God, by your word. Strengthen us in the fellowship of the saints. Strengthen us in the love that you have extended to us. And strengthen us, Lord, in our testimony for the risen Christ, in whose name, Jesus, we pray. Amen and amen. In the final verses of chapter 43 of Isaiah, God was reminding His people that they were sinners through and through. I don't know that we need to have that kind of reminder all the time, but God is good at doing that for us. We have to be reminded that we're sinners through and through. But he was reminding his people that that's what they were, sinners, and that they had grown tired of God. That is exactly what he was reminding them. You've grown tired of me. Just as the prodigal son had considered his father a a weary burden in his life to be relieved. 
That is why the prodigal son took his inheritance and went on his own way. But here is an entire group of people, an entire nation of people, an entire race of people who had grown tired of God to the extent that they stopped bringing offerings to Him. And I just, before we go on, it just, it brings to mind how routine sometimes our Christianity is in church. That we always know that when we come to church, we, well, on any given Sunday or Saturday night, because that's when we take offerings. Of course, you don't have to just offer on those days, but, you know, we, we get programmed or falling into the routine that that's what we do when we do it. But if we ever get mad at God or if we ever get upset with the Lord, you know, sometimes we withhold or we say, you know, we're a little tired of what we've been going through. We don't show up to church anyway. and We don't realize that, you know, we don't make any, uh, any effort whatsoever to catch up on our giving and our tithes and offerings, you know. So I, I say that because here, here was a people whose whole life centered around their worship of their God. And they grew and, and they grew tired of, of, of God, which, which is an amazing thing to me that anyone would get tired of a great and awesome and amazing God who was always willing to bless those who believed in Him and trusted in Him. But they had stopped bringing offerings to Him. Go back just a little bit in the, in the last chapter to verse 22. And, and here God says, But you have not called upon me, O Jacob. And you have been weary of me, O Israel. You have not brought me the sheep for your burnt offerings, nor have you honored me with your sacrifices. I have not caused you to serve with grain offerings, nor wearied you with incense. I'll explain that in just a moment. You have brought me no sweet cane with money, nor, nor have you uh, satisfied me with a fat of your sacrifices. But you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. Now, let me say that he's not saying I'm burdened by your iniquities because you brought them to me for me to forgive. You burden me and you weary me by the iniquities that you continue to commit against me. So they had, in effect, then, neglected to worship their God while running after other gods because that's what they were doing. Now, you have to understand that this happens as well in the church today. We get tired of worshiping God. We start, we start taking our, our affections elsewhere. And we start worshiping other things. And we start giving more time to other things. You see the connection here? They neglected to worship their God, yet they were running after other gods. And so, coming in judgment, the Lord had to disgrace the dignitaries. That is what it says in the King James. In the, in the New King James, it says that it had to do with disgracing the princes of the sanctuary. In other words, the heads of the priestly families and the holy officials through their capture and deportation by, uh, by the Gentiles. In other words, being taken into captivity, being taken into exile, being taken away from their land, being taken away from their temple, being taken away from the place of worship. In essence, being taken away from their God. But just consider, if you will, that the Jews had been diligent 
in performing the external services of religion. And again, that, that was something that they did. That was something that they were good at. Doing the outward things, doing the external things, prayers, incense, sacrifices, oblations. By the way, oblations really just a fancy word for religious donations. So they were good at doing all of these things, yet they did it without faith. They did it without trusting God. They did it as a religious activity, but not as a, having a relationship with their God. And so they were offering more frequently then to idols than they were to the true and living God. But what is it that God expected? You see, when the Lord says, I've not caused you to serve with grain offerings, nor wearied you with incense. What did he mean by that? Well, what did God expect of them? Hosea chapter 6 verse 6 tells us, For I desire mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. I want you to know me. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I desire that you show mercy one to another. I desire that you receive and accept the mercy that I give you. I desire that you just know me better. The knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. In Jeremiah chapter 7 verses 22 and 23... God says, For I did not speak to your fathers or command them in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt concerning burnt offerings or sacrifices, but this is what I commanded them, saying, Obey my voice. You've got to know somebody to be able to obey them. You've got to know them as a person who is above you, who is a master over you, and you have to do what? You have to obey them. But you first have to listen to them. You have to know them. Obey my voice, and I'll be your God, and you shall be my people, and walk in all the ways that I've commanded you that it may be well with you. So God is saying, I didn't just want you to just give me sacrifices and dump them before my throne or dump them before you know, my, my, my temple. I desire you. I desire a relationship with you, fellowship with you, communion with you. You see, this is why there's no difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. God has always desired the same thing. And Christians could do the very same thing as, as quote-unquote Christians by doing this and doing that and by offering this and by offering that and never having one bit of a relationship with God and with Jesus Christ. But as we come to chapter 44 now, as we come to chapter 44, the Lord now returns to the promise of salvation that He briefly interrupted to bring Israel's unworthiness to remembrance. What, I just, what we just read at the end of chapter uh, uh, 43. That, that interruption of bringing Israel's unworthiness to their remembrance. This is what you did. This is what you're doing. Notice in verse 25 of, of chapter 43. He says, I even I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. And I will not remember your sins. He's offering himself to them as a one who will forgive them, as a one who will take them back, as a one who will gather them together and forgive them and not remember their sins any longer. How great is our God to do that? How great is our God? We're not sure that anybody else around us that we might be able to trust can be that great as our God to forgive us completely of everything. 
that we could attempt that, we could try that. But I can't say that we could do it perfectly. But God says, I will remember your sins no more. And in spite of the people's unworthiness, because they had proved themselves to be unworthy, they are again addressed in loving terms with names that speak of full assurance of the Lord's favor. Notice in verses 1 and 2 of Isaiah 44, Yet hear now, he says, O Jacob, my servant, my servant, that's significant, and it's loving, and Israel, the completed name of Jacob, my prince whom I have chosen. To be chosen by God is a loving thing. You see how God is speaking to his people. Thus says the Lord who made you and formed you from the womb. How we ought to remember that about ourselves. How God has made us, God has formed us from the womb. You see, this, this ought to remind us of how great, how great God is. That He knew us before we even were born. That He knew us before we were even placed in our mother's womb. Before we were even a twinkle in our parents' eyes. God knew us. That is an awesome thought. And how precious that thought is when we consider the life that God gives Why does the world turn to things like abortion? Why? You could come up with a thousand reasons and not one reason stands up. It's all because of selfishness. It's all because of selfishness and what what the flesh itself wants and not what God has sought to be precious and is made to be precious. Thus says the Lord who made you and formed you from the womb who will help you. Fear not, he says, O Jacob, my servant, and you, Yeshurun, whom I have chosen. You see, the Lord will never take back His promise. Folks, please understand this about the Lord and Israel. Please understand this about the Lord and Israel. The Lord will never take back His promise of hope and restoration. As some people today teach in the church, Israel has lost all of its, its hope. It's lost all of its... its, its uh, you know, it's, it's kind of like you, you, you have no more you know, free rides here. You know, you've lost it all. God's angry with you. There really isn't anything of any effect with, with whatever is called the modern Israel today. No, 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 no. The Lord will never take back His promise of hope and restoration. Yet Israel can still experience the goodness and the mercy of the Lord if they'll only turn back to Him. And we know if we believe in prophecy that they will. But it's important for us to understand this ourselves, that God is never going to take back His promises of hope and restoration. The Jews are God's chosen people, and even though we today are in a period of time known as the time of the Gentiles, there will be a day when the Lord will bring about full spiritual restoration to Israel. And where we find that is not so much just in the Old Testament, but it's in the New Testament as well, in the book of Romans that Paul writes in Romans 11:25 and following when he says, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, 
lest you should be wise in your own opinion that blindness in part has happened to Israel until, notice, until. If you were here last night to hear Randall Price speak about the Temple Mount, he made a great statement, and, I, and I, I'm going to steal it, because it, it applies to what we're seeing here. That with Jesus Christ, the Lord who is coming back to redeem His people and to restore things according to His ways and all, that when Jesus comes back, you know, there, there, there aren't any ways to disrupt the promises because there are a lot of untils in the Bible. And there are a lot of untils that speak of, you know, this is happening now, but until... Until, until, and here we see it here, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, as it is written, the deliverer. In other words, they will be delivered. The deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. There's a promise. There's the hope. There is the hope of restoration. How do you take that away from a people? This is New Testament here. Paul, somewhere down the line, if, 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 it, if this were not so, would have to say, you know what I said back there in Romans chapter 11? We might, we might have to change that. <laughs> well, this is inspired by God. It is God-breathed. It is something that is telling us Old Testament, New Testament. God loves His people. God is going to restore them. God is going to deliver them. With that said, in the same spirit, the Lord calls Himself the one who made Israel and formed them in their womb. So as a people, He made them. He created them. He brought them about. He made them to be His own special chosen people. From the very beginning of their existence, the people of Israel have had no one else to form them. Who else could form Israel? And folks, listen to this. Who else could form Israel and a nation of people that have stayed together for over 3,000 years as God's people? Who else could do that but God, who formed them, who made them, who protects them, and still to this day. When there have been so many times from the beginning of, of, of modern history that people have tried to destroy the Jews. And in many cases got very close to it. Why are they still here? Because God loves them. And we cannot argue with that or fight with that. There is a tremendous blessing in verse 2. The Lord does not forsake the work of His hands. There's a tremendous blessing in verse 2. The Lord does not forsake the work of His hands. And for that reason He assures them again. Thus says the Lord who made you and formed you from the womb, who will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant. There's that blessing. Don't fear. Don't be afraid. I will help you. I made you. I know you. I've created you. I've made you my own special people. I will help you. Fear not, and you, Yeshua, in whom I have chosen. Go back to chapter 41 for just a moment, just a couple of pages back. Isaiah 41, verse 10. What did he, st- what did he say there? The very same thing. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. How many opportunities, how many times is it that God is telling His people, I'm going to do this for you. I'm going to be there for you. I'm your God. I will help you. You see, there's one difference at the end of verse 2. The difference is in His use of the name Yeshurun, or Jeshurun as some people pronounce it. But here in verse 2, 
the name Yeshurun replaces Israel or Jacob as it were, but replaces Israel in God's address, in God's loving address toward them. Why does he use this name Yeshurun? The name means the upright one. Think about this. The name means the upright one and is used to speak of the wonders of God's grace in that the Lord calls his deeply sinful people, his beloved and his upright one. Have you ever figured out why Lot is called the righteous Lot? I couldn't find much to see righteous about his life. But God called him the righteous, the righteous Lot. There isn't a whole lot through the history of Israel that we can say they were really upright. But God calls them that. When we look at ourselves as believers in Jesus Christ today, what do we boast in? Do we boast in the fact that we made ourselves what we are today if we're Christians? Or that we're better off now because of what we did back when we received Christ? It was because we turned, we did this, we did that. No, it was because of Christ. It was Him dying on the cross. It was Him shedding His blood for the forgiveness of our sins. We were sinners, we're still sinners. And yet, what does the Bible teach us? That we sit in heavenly places in Christ Jesus right now. Why? Not because of what we've done, but because of what Christ has done. Do you see the blessing of this? How God is calling His people. How God looks at His people. How God looks at Israel. How God looks at His church. And He sees something that we don't. (laughs) I think that's an amazing thing about God. That shows the character of His love toward us. In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Folks, this is the reason why we need to worship God in a way that makes Him above all things. I kind of started off this, this, this evening, for those that were here, you know, just talking a little bit about how a lot of terms that we've used, <clears throat> we apply them to things in the world and then we try to apply them to the Lord and it just doesn't seem the same. There are really certain things that we should never apply to the world and we should only apply to God. Because He is amazing. When we sing amazing grace, how sweet the sound, what else could be more amazing than the Lord doing what He did for us? Undeserving scum that we were. Even John Newton, when he writes amazing grace, says, who saved a wretch like me. We have people today who change the word of uh, the, the word "wretch" in the song because they don't want to sound like if you know we're 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 not really wretches anymore. Yeah, well, yeah, well, you know, speak for yourself. The moment you turn away from God, the moment you start doing things on your own, whether anybody sees it or not, God sees it. We're wretched, but what God sees is the blood of Jesus on us. That's precious. And that we didn't do for ourselves. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, Paul said in Titus, but according to his mercy, he saved us. How great that is. The name upright is used to speak of the wonders of God's grace and that the Lord calls his deeply sinful people, his beloved and his upright one. As we go on in verse 3 now, it says, For I will pour out water on him who is thirsty, and floods on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your offspring. They will spring up among the grass like willows by the water courses. 
One will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call himself by the name of Jacob. Another will write with his hand the Lord's and, uh, and name himself by the name of Israel. Here's another reason why Israel is not to be afraid. The Lord says, be not afraid. Do not fear. Jacob, my servant. Another reason why Israel is not to be afraid because of the redemptive work of the Lord. Because the Lord has redeemed. This was another glorious promise to a humble returning Israel from their captivity. In other words, this is what they would be hearing. God is redeeming us. Not only will the blessing be upon nature, as we see pour water on Him thirsty floods on the dry ground, uh, they'll spring up like grass and so on and so forth. Uh, Because sometimes it looks like it's just dealing with nature. Not only will the blessing be upon nature, but most importantly, upon His people and their offspring. God isn't simply giving them His Spirit. Please understand this. God isn't simply giving them His Spirit. He is pouring out His Spirit on them as water poured over them. And we're not talking about sprinkling here. We're not talking about just little, you know, little... Sprinkles. We're talking about floods of water. Poured out. That word pour is just talking about just this unlimited source of, of pouring out from God. He's pouring out His Spirit on them as water poured over them. He wants to go beyond giving just a few drops. I don't know why it is that, that some people in the church today just, just feel satisfied with just a couple of drops. <laughs> when Jesus promised much more than that. He promised much more than just a few drops. He wants to pour. When we are spiritually dry, would a few drops help? Probably not. When you're really, really parched, you're out there in the desert, and you I don't know what you're doing out there, but you're out there in the desert, and you, and you don't have any water, and you're just getting parched, you know, would a couple of drops might, might help a little? No. You find yourself a source of water and you just fall into it and you just do everything you can to replenish what you've lost. When you're spiritually dry, He wants to pour. And if you've experienced His outpouring, He wants to pour some more and keep on pouring. That's why we should never be satisfied with just one outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Oh yeah, I received the Spirit years ago. Back then, way back then. Oh, that was great then. We should be getting poured on all the time. And the promise is there and the supply is unlimited. Listen to what Jesus said in speaking to the woman at the well in John 4, verses 13 and 14. He's talking about a water that she, you know, she thinks, oh, you're talking about the water in this well? And, and Jesus answers it to whoever drinks of this water here in the well will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. Never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water, springing up into everlasting life. And that water never ends. Because everlasting life never ends. You have to understand, you see the pictures that are being given here. I mean, it's a beautiful image of just water just continues to flow and flow and flow because that is God's life being poured into us and out of us. Fountains of living water springing up into everlasting life. Later on in John 6:35 when Jesus says to his people, "I'm the bread of life." And notice he says, "He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst." So there's more than just bread being given to us. 
bread and water and the outpouring of God's Spirit. In John chapter 7, when he speaks of that, in John 7 verses 37 through 39, on the last day, the great day of the feast, the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus stood and He cried out saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to Me and drink. You know what was happening that day? Throughout that Feast of Tabernacles, the priests were always taking these gold uh, vessels uh, to the Gihon Springs, and they would go and they would fill these springs, uh, or they would fill these vessels with the water from the Gihon Springs, and then they would come back to the temple and they would pour it out before God. They would pour it out before God as an offering. And on that day, as they're doing this, Jesus stands, and really, it's one of those those, those times when 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 he when when he when he stands and he cries out, which means that he's shouting this out to all those that that are kind of following the priests along the way with their water. And Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to Me and drink. He who believes in Me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But notice what He says. But this He spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in Him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. But it was going to come, and it was a promise that could be counted on because of who He was. He was Messiah. He was greater than the priesthood. He was greater than the priests. He was greater than the offerings of the people. For He Himself would become the one true and good offering for men. The effect of the poured out Spirit is life. That is what the effect is in verse 4. The effect of the poured out Spirit is life. They will spring up among the grass like willows by the watercourses. Life springs up and it grows where the Spirit of God is poured out. Another effect is being identified with the Lord, which is verse 5. And knowing that we belong to Him and aren't afraid to say it. They weren't afraid to call themselves of Jacob. They weren't afraid to call themselves the Lord's or to call themselves by the name of Israel. No longer will anyone be afraid when we've, been, when, when we've had the water of the Holy Spirit poured on us. Are we afraid to tell people that we are Christ, that we are Christians? No way. Why? Because we identify with the Lord now. Because of what God has given us. He's given us life. The Spirit is the identifying seal upon every believer. Every believer has the identifying seal of Christ through the Holy Spirit. Look at Ephesians chapter 1. Paul nails it this way in verse 13 and 14. He says, In Him you also trusted, after you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed, notice, with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of His glory. So we've been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. We identify with Christ. We identify with the name of Jesus. We're not secret agent Christians. We're not to be behind cloak. I won't even mention the dagger. I'm a Christian, but don't tell anybody. No secret agent Christians here. Let me ask you this question before we go on. What is it in this life? What is it in this life that will keep us from saying we belong to Him? Is there something that we're connected to, something that we're connected with, that, that just keeps us from saying we belong to Jesus? 
You see, if the Spirit of God has been poured on our life, there's nothing that's going to keep us from saying that we belong to Jesus. So what would keep anybody from saying they belong to Him? Well, these people were going to get that kind of a blessing. Isaiah 44 now, verse 6 says, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. Interesting little statement. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. There's one God. But that one God is Lord, He is King, He's Redeemer. And yet here, it, it, it designates possibly the Father and the Son. Not just possibly. That's what we're seeing here. And we'll notice that. We'll see that in just a moment. Notice what he says. I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no, there is no God. He says, there's only one God. Besides me, I'm the first and the last. Besides me, there's no God. And who can proclaim as I do? Who can proclaim as I do? And then let him declare it and set it in order for me. Since I appointed the ancient people and the things that are coming and shall come, Let them show these to them. Do not fear, nor be afraid. Have I not told you uh, from that time and declared it? You are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? What's the answer to that? No. Indeed, there is no other rock. I know not what. The very idea that there is no other God is detailed by a thorough rendering of the worthlessness of the gods and the foolishness of venerating them, especially the worship of images, which we're going to see in verse 9 in just a moment. But I'm I'm prefacing this here. Because an idol, you see, can never be the first. Why? An idol can never be the first because an idol needs someone to make him. Do you understand the importance of I am the first and I am the last? God says, nobody made me. An idol can never be the last. Why? An idol can never be the last because they wear out and they break. But God says, I'm the last. Why? Because I never run out. I never end. I'm never broken. I never fall apart. I never need batteries. I don't need that little dumb rabbit. All right? I'm the first. Nobody created me. I'm the last. I'm eternal. I dwell in a totally different mind, a totally different time continuum than you do. For the Lord to say that He is first is to say that He does not derive His being from any other, but is self-existing. To say that He is the last is to say that He remains supreme and sovereign to the very end. Notice that Jesus takes the same title. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 17, Jesus Himself has the same title. And when I saw Him, I fell at His feet as dead, but He laid His right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid, I am the first and the last. That's Jesus speaking to John. I am the first and the last. You go all the way to the last chapter, from the first to the last chapter. That's pretty significant. 
I'm the first and the last. So you go to the first chapter and you go to the last chapter. And in the last chapter of Revelation, chapter 22, verse 12, it says, And behold, I'm coming quickly and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. And notice that he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Since there cannot be two firsts and two lasts, Jesus has to be the Lord God. (laughs) This is great. This is great. God's Word can be trusted. And the person of God, one God in three persons, though we may not understand it fully, that is who we have. Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, each one called a person, the Godhead. Yet we have one God. Who can proclaim, he says, who can, he asks, who can proclaim as I do? Since the Lord lives outside our time continuum, he can certainly proclaim things before they happen. We, we talked about that not too long ago. Do not fear or be afraid, he says, when we really know who God is and His great wisdom and authority over all things, then we won't fear as those who have no hope or faith in God. There are a lot of people today who don't know what's going on in the world. They have some kind of hope against hope that maybe something good might happen in the world. Maybe maybe we can turn things around, you know. Uh, I know I've said this a thousand times, but you know, it's, it's kind of like back in the 60s, you know, the, the Coca-Cola, I like to teach the world to sing kind of mentality. You know, we just all need to get on the same page and sing the same song and drink soda, drink Coke together, you know, and then the world will have peace. And then, and then you know, we won't have global warming anymore because we're drinking cold sodas. But, uh, you know, that's weird. No, when we really know who God is and His great wisdom and authority, we won't fear as those who have no hope. Why? Because there is no other God and there is no other rock to take our refuge. He is the rock of our refuge. He is the fortress. He is, he is everything that we need for our safety, our security, our salvation. Everything that we need. No one is more secure than the person who trusts in the God of Israel. No one is more secure than the person who trusts in God Almighty. No one is more secure than the person who trusts in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These first eight verses are contrasting God's forming of Israel. Now the forming... You know, as he said, I'm the one who formed you. That's an important thought here. Because these first eight verses contrast God's forming of Israel with the Gentiles forming their own gods. Look at verse 9 now. Those who make an image, all of them are useless. And their precious things shall not profit. In other words, the things that they make shall not profit. They are their own witnesses. They neither see nor know that they may be ashamed... Who would form a God or mold an image that profits Him nothing? And we're not talking about, you know, the fa- those that you know, make images and then sell them and then, you know, make a you know, buck or two from selling each one. We're not talking about that. The profit that He's talking about is what, what, what is it? Is it going to profit you for eternity? Is it going to profit you in your life for the rest, you know, for the rest of your existence? Who would form a God or mold an image that profits Him nothing? Surely all his companions would be ashamed. And the workmen, they, they're mere men. They're just men. Let them all be gathered together. Let them stand up. Yet they shall fear. They shall be ashamed together. Those who manufacture idols are declared as useless or nothing. 
The ones who are making them are declared as useless. The idols or the precious treasured things made are considered worthless and shall not profit. You know, it's interesting that the Gentiles and their gods are closely identified. The cause of one is the cause of the other. The cause of one is the cause of the other, yet they neither see nor know, and in that they should be ashamed. Because it's not going to go anywhere. It's like the pet rock. How many of you had a pet rock back in the 60s or 70s? One person, two people. Hey, people are being honest now. Pet rocks. Remember the pet rocks? Golly. You know, people took care of them like, it's my pet rock. Man, you're an idiot, man. I mean, what's wrong with you? I'm not calling you guys that because I had my own. But, you know, (laughs) anyway. But it's like, you know, look at you later. What are you doing? You know, this thing. Remember, I used to have a class in UTEP. I, I think it was in UTEP or... I don't know where it was. Maybe it wasn't my class. Maybe I was teaching at Urban or something. Somewhere they had this psychology class or something, and people had to take care of an egg, you know, and they had to bring it up like a child. I was like, yeah, just, you know, what is wrong with this? It's just weird, you know. And I think that later on, you know, over the years, we say, boy, I'm sure ashamed of that. Well, that's what's happening here, see. That's what's happening here. I'm sorry I brought up those memories, by the way. I just, yeah, forgive me. In fact, they will be put to shame, by the way. They will be put to shame. When God puts you to shame, man, it's, it's, it's not a funny thing. Deuteronomy 4, look at that, verses 27 through 29. Deuteronomy 4, the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. I mean, this is prophetic to the people of Israel down many years. And it says, And there you will serve gods, the work of men's hands, and wood and stone, and uh, which neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. But from there you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find Him if you seek Him with all your heart and with all your soul. But there will be a time, you see, it's it just telling them that you're, you're going to take your eyes off me, and then you're going to go start putting your eyes on, on the idols of the nations around you, and then you're going to start worshiping them. Then you're going to be captive by them. See, that's why they were in captivity to heathens, Because what they began to desire, that would take them captive. Once they became disobedient to God, God put them. He said, you want that? You got it. But now you're in slavery to it. Later on, Deuteronomy 27, verse 15 says, Cursed is the one who makes a carved or molded image. Cursed is the one who makes a carved or molded image. An abomination to the Lord. The work of the hands of the craftsman. And sets it up in secret. And all the people shall answer, say, Amen. You know, they say, Oh, Amen. You know, well, well, cursed be him. Then they went and did it. See? Problem. So that's, that's the start of this thought. Now, if you look at verses 12 through 19, I'm going to read the whole passage because, we'll, we'll, you know, it's, it's a story. It's a satire here. So listen. The blacksmith with the tongs works one in the coals, fashions it with hammers, works it with the strength of his arms. Even so, he's hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The craftsman stretches out his rule. He marks one out with chalk. He fashions it with a plane. He marks it, without, uh, marks it out with a compass. Makes it like the figure of a man, according to the beauty of a man, that it may remain in the house. He's showing us what they go through to make an idol. 
He cuts down cedars for himself and takes the cypress and the oak. He secures it for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants a pine and the rain nourishes it. Then it shall be for a man to burn, for he will take some of it and warm himself. Yes, he kindles it and bakes bread. Indeed, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it a carved image and falls down to it. He burns half of it in the fire. With this half he eats meat. He roasts the roast and is satisfied. He even warms himself and he says, Ah, oh, I'm warm, I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god. His carved image. He falls down before it, worships it, prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. They do not know nor understand. Now see, we've been doing all this work. Who's been going out and doing all this work? Take this wood and they burn it. And, they, and then, then they take a little bit of it and they carve an image and say, Oh, you're my god. Is that starting to sound a little weird here? They do not know nor understand, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. And no one considers in his heart, nor is there knowledge nor understanding to say, I have burned half of it in the fire. Yes, I have also baked bread on it, on its coals. I have roasted meat and eaten it. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? You see, they're not thinking. Shall I fall down before a block of wood? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? You see, this passage just vividly illustrates in satire the folly of idol worship by demonstrating the entire process of making an idol. In other words, it is a wearisome process by which gods are made. If the idol maker doesn't stop to eat or take a drink in time, he might just faint. What futility, you see, what folly is described in this portion of Scripture? There's an interesting translation of the first and last phrases, by the way, of verse 19. Verse 19 says this, it says, um, And no one considers in his heart, no one stops to think. The last phrase verse 19 shall I fall down before a block of wood in other words shall I bow down to a block of wood their eyes and their hearts have been shut in such a way that reminds us of the heart of Pharaoh in the time of Moses the children of Israel in Egyptian captivity Slavery for 400 years, over 400 years. You remember Pharaoh and the times that Moses came. And now we're told three things about Pharaoh's heart. I want to read them to you. Exodus 4.21 The Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do all those wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in your hand, but I will harden his heart. Do you see that? God tells Moses right up, right, right up front, I will harden his heart. So that he will not let the people go. So he's telling Moses just clearly what's going to happen. A few, verse, a few chapters later, Exodus 7 verse 13. When we see Moses, uh, Pharaoh now, it says, And Pharaoh's heart grew hard. Pharaoh's heart grew hard, and he did not heed them as the Lord had said. So he did exactly. But it says that Pharaoh's heart grew hard. Now in the next chapter, Exodus 8.15, it says, But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart. He himself hardened his heart and did not heed them as the Lord had said. The question is, who hardened Pharaoh's heart? 
Who hardened Pharaoh's heart? God says, I'll harden Pharaoh's heart. We're told that his heart was hardened, and then we're told that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. What we see here in very quick terms and simple terms, God was simply giving Pharaoh over to his own sin. He was simply giving Pharaoh over to his own sin. Pharaoh Pharaoh never had the intention of doing good. See, we have to understand that. Pharaoh never had the intention of doing good to the Israelites, so God allowed his heart to do what it wanted to do all along. You see a great picture of that in Romans chapter 1, when it says that God gives men over to their sins, or gives them over to their lusts and their desires. You can look that up tonight if you want. Romans chapter 1, read the whole chapter. But from about eight chapter, verse 18 on, read how he gives them over to their own desires. And you'll notice in verse 20, it says here, now Isaiah 40, verse, 44, verse 20, he feeds on ashes. Here's the result of all of that stuff of making idols. He feeds on ashes. A deceived heart has turned him aside, and he cannot deliver his soul, his, his soul nor say, is there not a lie in my right hand? He can't even say that. This is a lie, this idol. He feeds on ashes. Folks, only a senseless animal would look for forage in a blackened area where a fire has raged. Only a senseless animal would look for food where, the, where there's only ashes. He seeks his comfort. This, 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 this idol maker seeks his comfort and support where they cannot be found. Comfort and support cannot be found in idols made by hands. The same goes for the idolater here. Just like you know, the, the, the animal can, can certainly find comfort and support in a, in a blackened area. But the same goes for the idolater, for his deluded, deceived heart has led him astray. His heart has led him astray. Just like Pharaoh, his heart has led him astray. The result is disappointment. Why? Because he cannot save himself. Isn't that a lesson we learn when we come to Christ? We cannot save ourselves. We cannot become good enough you know, and righteous enough. It has to be the righteousness of Christ. It has to be the work of Christ. It has to be everything Jesus and none of ourselves. The idolater is like someone who grasps at something attractive and he thinks he has something wonderful. But if he looked more closely, he would know it to be worthless. There's a lot of things that we see in life that look really good from a distance. But you get up close and you begin to look at the detail and you think, you know, it's a good thing we don't buy things from a distance. I wonder. We sometimes buy things on the internet. That's a pretty distant place. We're looking at a picture on a screen. Mm, that looks good. Let's get it. And what looks this big on the screen comes about this big, you know, when you finally get it. Unless you know what you're getting anyway. Isaiah 55, verse 2. Isaiah 55, verse 2 says, Why do you spend money for what is not bread? And your wages for what does not satisfy. That's all. That's the only part I want to read there. Why do you spend money for what is not bread? And your wages for what does not satisfy. We ought to take that to heart ourselves in this life. Because a lot of people spend their money, their money on worthless things. Let's go on because of time. Verse 21. Isaiah 44, Remember these, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. 
I have formed you. You're my servant, O Israel. O Israel, I should say, you will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out like a thick cloud your transgressions and like a cloud your sins. Notice what he says. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, you lower parts of the earth. Break forth into singing, you mountains, O forest, and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and glorified himself in Israel. As God's people remembered the folly of making and worshiping idols, it should have inspired greater trust and confidence in the Lord God. All we need to do is consider seriously. Folks, we take anything home with us. Let's take this thought home. All we need to do is consider seriously the alternatives to following the Lord, and that should make us follow Him more closely. What are the alternatives of following the Lord? All the other things that we do, everything else in this life that goes opposite, in the opposite direction, away from God, all we have to do is consider those alternatives, and I tell you what, you'll follow God more closely. That is what he's telling them. Remember what Peter said to Jesus in John chapter 6, verses 67 through 69, when people were leaving because they, they misunderstood what Jesus said when he said, eat my flesh and drink my blood. And they totally got freaked out and so many people started leaving the Lord and the only ones that were left were the, were the 12 and, and so on. And Jesus said to the 12, do you also want to go away? But Simon Peter answered him and he said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are Christ, the Son of the living God. He says, we've seen the alternative. We see you. We want you. Not the alternatives. Everybody else missed it, but we see who you are. The Lord has always given us many more reasons why we can love Him and trust Him. To Israel and to the church, He's given all these reasons. I have formed you. You're my servant. You will not be forgotten by me. Isn't that a beautiful thought? I will not forget you. I have redeemed you. I have blotted out like a thick cloud your transgressions. I have redeemed you. And any one of these would be great, wouldn't they? Any one of these reasons would be great, but combined they're overwhelming. How God loves us. How God has cared for us. And then the theme of verse 23 is developed by Paul for us in Romans chapter 8. Where it says, single, you know, verse 23 of our, of our text says, Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, you lower parts of the earth. Break forth into singing, you mountains, forests, every tree. You know, that's all nature breaking out because uh, the Lord has redeemed Jacob. Paul, uh, Paul has set this for us in Romans uh, chapter 8, verse 19, when he says, For the earnest expectation of their creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. You see, when God begins to redeem his people, even all of creation will shout glory unto God. So how appropriate then for Paul to state this in preparation of his discourse on the future of Israel in chapters 9 through 11 of Romans. So you, you can go back and read that yourself. But, but isn't that great? Because he's talking about the redemption of Israel in, in, in chapters 9 through 11. And he prefaces that with creation groaning until that happens, which is exactly what we see here in the book of Isaiah. Verses 24 through 28, now the last part. 
Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer. And he who stretched, I'm sorry, and he who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who makes all things, who stretches out the heavens all alone, who spreads abroad the earth by himself, who frustrates the signs of the babblers, drives diviners mad, (laughs) who turns wise men backward and makes their knowledge foolishness, who confirms the word of his servant and performs the counsel of his messengers, who says to Jerusalem, you shall be inhabited, to the cities of Judah, you shall be built. And I will raise up her waste places, who says to the deep, be dry, and I will dry up your rivers, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall perform all my pleasure, saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built, and to the temple your foundation shall be laid. Folks, great claims are made by the Lord in this passage. He is their Redeemer, the Creator of each person, the Creator of all things. These are all the claims. Wiser and greater than anyone who upholds his own servants, who resurrects dead cities, which is Jerusalem, which he's talking about, who has authority over all his creation. So how does he back up all these claims? How is God backing up these claims? Once again, he proves who he claims to be by giving forth the name of the deliverer of Israel's exile in Babylon. 200 years before Cyrus would fulfill this prophecy, his name is mentioned in Scripture. His name is mentioned by Isaiah, Isaiah 41, verse 2. Who raised up one from the east? We've already studied this. We didn't have the name at this point, but we talked about it as being Cyrus. Who raised up one from the east? Who in righteousness called him to his feet? Who gave the nations before him, made him rule over kings? Who gave them as the dust to his sword, as driven stubble to his bow? It's talking about Cyrus. Now he names him here in chapter 44. God calls Cyrus his shepherd in that the Lord was using him to do something good and helpful for his people Israel. Cyrus was God's appointed caregiver as a shepherd to lead his people to good pastures, which is exactly what he will do. And so we see this in Ezra chapter 1 verse 2. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, all the kingdoms of the earth the Lord God of heaven has given me. And he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. In 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verse 23, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, All the kingdoms of the earth the Lord God of heaven has given me, and he has commanded me to build him a house of Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is among you of all his people? May the Lord his God be with him and let him go up. Wow! That's Cyrus doing exactly what he was told to do 200 years before he was even born. God is proving himself to be God. To be all these things. And there's one other little hint, by the way. In verse 27, when he says, Who says to the deep, be dry, and I will dry up your rivers? That's, that's a hint here. It's a hint of how Cyrus and the Persians would go and take Babylon. They dried up the Euphrates River. And that's how they came in. Read the book of Daniel. And you'll see. May we never take for granted the privilege that we have of knowing and worshiping the true and living God who has proved His prophetic word. And we never take for granted that privilege. 2 Peter chapter 1, I'll close with this, verse verse 19 through 21. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. The prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved 
by the Holy Spirit. Shall we pray?